The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we're looking today at Isaiah 47. And as we do, we look at uh, the account again of the fall of Babylon in prophetic perspective. And as we do, we need to look at all of these things with the eye of faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we can see into invisible realms. Realms that cannot be proven or described in any way by scientific endeavor. There's nothing about the spiritual realm that can be discerned in the laboratories at MIT or in the RTP here. But there is around us all the time a spiritual realm that exerts a tremendous force, a magnetic force on our souls all the time. And we can only perceive it by faith, by the ministry of the Word of God, by, by the reading of the Scripture. We have our eyes open to see it and to know it, that we are under this gravitational pull all the time. We cannot see into the invisible realm apart by faith. But by faith we know that there is a God who sits on a throne of light, who I just prayed to a moment ago, a God who dwells in unapproachable light. But beyond God and beyond the holy angels that I alluded to and they cover their faces as they serve him and cry, holy, holy, holy. Beyond these invisible spiritual beings, there are dark, evil forces. There are fallen angels called demons or devils who are organized into a, a system of evil and who are, that system of evil is ruled by Satan called the devil or that ancient serpent. And together they make up this dark kingdom, which in some places in Scripture is spoken of in these words, rulers, authorities, powers of this present darkness. In mysterious and immeasurable ways, the devil and his angels run this world. They orchestrate this world system that surrounds us all the time. And they draw each person on earth into patterns of rebellion against Almighty God. Satan is called the God of this age, the ruler of the power of the air. During the temptation of Jesus Christ, he took him to a high mountain and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all this is mine for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you will bow down and worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus refused, of course, saying, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But Satan makes lesser forms of that same offer to the great leaders of this present age, to the movers and shakers of our era. Bow down to me, worship me, and I will give you sections of this world to rule. The world system is completely under Satan's invisible domination. And it is a bitter enemy to Christ. Spoken of in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. We are warned there, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
for everything that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its uh, desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We are warned there of the magnetic pull in the word lust, the magnetic pull toward evil. Now, in Scripture, sometimes this organized system of allure and enticement and power called the world in some of these scriptures that we've already looked at is called Babylon. Babylon. It's a mysterious name. Because Babylon was a literal city that was built in space and time back in history alongside the mighty Euphrates River and what is today called Iraq. In Genesis 10, it was founded by a man named Nimrod, who's a mighty hunter, a warrior, who also founded and established Nineveh, which became the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Babylon was built on great farmland, and therefore it produced, this region produced for its people economic prosperity. They eventually became uh, powerful traders that made lots and lots of money. In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel was built there at Babylon which was a symbol of human rebellion against Almighty God. They said, come, let us build a tower that reaches from earth up to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. At the core of this uh, effort was human pride, rebellion, arrogance, self-worship. And God descended there and uh, humbled them by confusing the languages. Babylon eventually in time was conquered by the Assyrians who came down from Nineveh, down the Fertile Crescent, and conquered Babylon. And they became a subject city and a subject people under the mighty Assyrian Empire. But they chafed against that yoke of the Assyrians, and they were looking for allies. And one of those allies was Hezekiah, the godly king of Judah. You remember that story in Isaiah 39, which we already covered a number of months ago. But they sent emissaries to Hezekiah, the Babylonians did. And said, in effect, come, let's make a pact between us. We have a common enemy, the Assyrians, and uh, let's be friends. Hezekiah uh, welcomed them warmly. They also probably puffed up his ego, his pride, because God had uh, used him in an amazing way uh, to lead a deliverance, supernatural deliverance from the Assyrians when 185,000 Assyrian troops were killed in one night by an angel of the Lord. And then he also was miraculously healed from a fatal illness. And so he was puffed up with pride and God left him to test him to know what was in his heart. And what he did was he took these Babylonian emissaries and he showed them all of his wealth and power and everything. Like they were just bosom buddies. Showed him everything. And Isaiah the prophet came and warned him in Isaiah 39. Who were these men? Where did they come from? Well, from the distant country. They came from the country of Babylon. What did you show them? Everything. He said, hear now the word of the Lord. By the way, whenever Isaiah says that to you and you're the king, be afraid. <laughs> Hear now the word of the Lord. There will come a time when your own sons and daughters will be born to you, will be carried off, and all that your fathers have accumulated will be carried off, and your sons will serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Clear prophecy of the exile to Babylon, which happened a century and a quarter later, under King Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty king of the Babylonians, 586 B.C., and God fulfilled it, and they destroyed the city, they burned the temple to the ground, they slaughtered all but a small, very small remnant of Jews. And 
they were exiled. That small remnant was exiled to Babylon. And there they were, in effect, enslaved by the Babylonians for 70 years. While they were there, the Jews settled down and lived their lives. Some of them prospered. Life under the Babylonians was not miserable, but there was some oppression and some wickedness that happened to them there. But God predicted very plainly through the prophet Isaiah and through Jeremiah and other prophets that someday Babylon would be destroyed and a remnant of Jews would go back to the promised land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We already saw this in Isaiah 13, verses 19 through 22. Isaiah the prophet said, There Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. And jackals will fill her houses. So total desolation, total destruction of Babylon already predicted. We've already seen it in Isaiah 13. The fall of Babylon to Cyrus the Great and the Medes and the Persians is clearly told in Daniel 5. It happened just as God said it would. And Babylon was eventually, over a number of decades leading to centuries, completely destroyed. Didn't happen right away, but eventually ground down into the dust. But from that dust where jackals and hyenas were to live would rise and move to another place, what I would call the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon. And it moves and settles down like a malevolent force, a wicked force, settles down and dominates whatever nation is the most powerful and the most economically prosperous and influences its leaders and pulls it toward wickedness and toward rebellion. Why would I say that? Because we're not done with Babylon after Babylon falls. It keeps cropping up in the Bible. And so in 1 Peter 5.13, the apostle Peter wrote some mysterious words to the Christians there scattered throughout the Mediterranean Sea. And he wrote these words, 1 Peter 5, 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Who is she who is in Babylon? Well, most scholars believe that we're talking about the church in the city in which Peter, religious tradition uh, has him, was at at the time when he wrote that letter, Rome. And he calls Rome Babylon. And he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen with you, namely the church in Babylon, says hello. (laughs) And greets you. If that were all I had, then I wouldn't be so sure about this idea of the spirit of Babylon. But we see again at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, Babylon comes up huge in that prophetic book. And so in Revelation 17, we have Babylon, the city of Babylon, pictured as a scarlet woman, a prostitute, a whore, dressed in scarlet clothes. And she is drunk with the the blood of the saints. And she is a woman of of luxury, a woman of of pleasure, and a a woman of viciousness. And interpreted at the end uh, of that in Revelation 17, 18, the woman you saw, Babylon, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. At that time... Rome, but it just continues. And then in Revelation 18, we have, again, there predicted the fall of Babylon, the very thing that's in front of us in Isaiah 47. 
There in Revelation 18, 2 and 3, a mighty angel shouts, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. That chapter depicts Babylon as powerful, but also alluring and enticing, especially economically, how she was involved in trade with every commodity that could be traded with. Revelation 18, 12, and 13. Also, Babylon is portrayed as having mysterious and even occultic powers over the hearts and minds of people. And so in, in Revelation 18, 23, it says, Your merchants were the world's great men, and by your magic spell they led the whole world astray. All nations were led astray. But her time of wealth and prosperity, uh, wicked prosperity, come to an end. And God specifically judges Babylon at the end of the world for one thing above all else. Her treatment of God's people. The effect that Babylon had on God's people. And as I said, there are two aspects to Babylon. There's the military slash political side, which has to do with brute force. And then there's the economic side, which has to do with luxury and prosperity and the enticements of the world. And in these two ways, Babylon comes at the people of God all around the world. Through persecution and martyrdom and imprisonment and the harder side of what the world does to God's people. Shedding her blood. The blood of the saints. Versus the economic allure and the enticement of the world. So this is the true story of Babylon, the story of a corrupt world system that Satan runs, alluring people by economic prosperity, dominating people by military might, slaughtering the people of God who will not bow the knee to her. Now, as we come to Isaiah 47, it's really a partner to Isaiah 46. 46 and 47 go together. Last week we saw how God predicted the fall of Bel and Nebo, the uh, patron gods of Babylon. And with the judgment of the gods of Babylon comes very naturally in the next chapter, the fall of Babylon, and they go together. Isaiah 47 portrays the city of Babylon as first a pampered princess with a wicked heart sitting enthroned on a lofty perch in the world, comfortable, luxurious, arrogant, complacent, living in the luxury that the conquests of her father have brought her, feeding on those conquests. She's a spoiled virgin daughter drinking in luxury on the backs of the people uh, Babylon's armies have conquered. Later in the chapter, she's portrayed as a wicked king. Again, complacent, wicked, arrogant, sitting on a throne. Secure in the protection of her husband's power, boasting that that's going to go on forever. And nothing's going to change it. Isaiah 47 says, This pampered virgin daughter will be thrown down from her lofty throne, stripped of her luxury, and made to do the work of common slaves. Isaiah 47 says this arrogant, wealthy, secure queen will lose her husband and her children in a single day. She'll become a widow with no children and no future. Now, not only does Isaiah 47 predict the fall of Babylon in world history to take on the menial roles of enslaved exiles, it explains why this happened. Because of the harsh way she treated God's people. And because of that, God is going to take vengeance on her and crush her for what she did to God's people. Now, the fall of Babylon, as I said, big picture is far more significant than just a moment that happened a long, long time ago. And so what I want to do is I want to speak to you as the people of God 
a word of warning about the spirit of Babylon, the world, and a word of great encouragement that someday that alluring force will be over forever and will be free. So I want to speak a word of warning leading to a word of great encouragement and blessing. So let's look at it verse by verse now. Beginning in the first section, verses 1 through 4. Humiliated Babylon is commanded to vacate her throne. There it says, go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs, and wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. So the virgin daughter of Babylon is the pampered, enthroned daughter of the king, so to speak. Virgin daughter image is used frequently in the Bible uh, to refer to what's most delicate and precious in that culture. The young girls who frequently are are portrayed in in various prophecies as taking tambourines or other pieces of musical instruments and going out and celebrating military victories. Like when the Philistines win or something, the daughters of the Philistines go out and celebrate. Same thing for the daughter of Zion. Does the same thing, celebrating when the Jews win a victory. This kind of thing. So here, the, da- the virgin daughter of Babylon is pictured as, as pampered, enthroned. She's sitting on the top of the world. I remember I was uh, at a vacation spot and there's this embroidered pillow in pink. It's a very girly pillow. And it says, princess of quite a lot. Well, Babylon was princess of quite a lot. And she's arrogant and she's pampered and she's protected. But suddenly, suddenly that time comes to an end. It's done. And she loses her position of power. And she's thrown down from her throne of of luxury. And she's commanded to sit in the dust. That's humiliating. She's never going to be called tender or delicate again. She's going to develop calluses on her hands. Because she's going to do menial labor. She's going to grind flowers. She's going to go have to get water. She's going to have to lift up her skirts to wade through the streams and and get water. She's she's enslaved. She's going to be humiliated. Enslaved to hard labor. Stripped and humiliated. All of the glorious clothing and and nice raiment. All of that's gone. Instead her nakedness will be exposed to the, the nations. And God says very plainly, I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. So he's very meticulous in his judgment here, verse 3. Now verse 4 is a hinge between verses 1 through 3, which speak about what's going to happen to the virgin daughter of Babylon, and verses 5 and 6, which describe why it's going to happen. So in the middle of that, we have this beautiful statement, our Redeemer, verse 4, our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. So just, if you can just stop there and gaze at verse 4 and say, hallelujah, I can't wait to be redeemed from Babylon. Amen? I can't wait to be set free forever from this alluring force. And we have a redeemer. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he has the power to rescue us from Babylon. So we can shake the dust of this place off our feet and no longer be defiled by it. And he bought the right to do that at the price of his own blood. By the shedding of his own blood, he can rescue his people from Babylon. He is our redeemer. Praise God. So in verses 5 and 6, we have God taking vengeance on Babylon for Israel's sake. It says, sit in silence, go into darkness, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. 
and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. So, Babylon's sentence of judgment here is an act of vengeance by a sovereign God. This is not a twist of fate. This is not the wheel of fortune turning against Babylon now, and now it's the turn for the Medes and the Persians. Not at all. It's a direct act of vengeance by Almighty God, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews. It's not an accident. And God's purpose concerning the whole Babylonian exile, he says, was to punish his people for their sins. They had sinned, they had violated the covenants, they had gone after other other gods. And so God used Babylon to punish them for a very specific reason. For their rebellion and their idolatry, God brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in. He was angry with his people. And they came in and it says desecrated his inheritance. They came to the city of God, Jerusalem, called Zion so often in the Old Testament. And they destroyed it. They, just, they, they destroyed the, the wall. And even more, they went to the heart, the religious heart of the city, the temple. Solomon's temple. And they destroyed it completely. They took whatever was valuable and destroyed, burned the rest. In Psalm 74, the psalmist pictures the Babylonians doing this very thing to the temple. It says, your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. So they went through and just destroyed God's inheritance. Desecrated it. Yes, but they went too far. Went too far. Now, how did they go too far? They were doing the very thing that God sent them to do. Yes, but they made two great errors. First of all, they didn't do it for the glory of God and for the honor of his name. They were pagans who, Habakkuk says, worshipped and sacrificed their own military prowess. So they had no zeal for the glory of God at all. Secondly... They went too far in terms of oppression and harshness on the people of God. Look at verse 6. You showed them no mercy. Even on the aged you laid a very heavy yoke. This, by the way, is the very thing that the prophet Daniel confronted Nebuchadnezzar about. In Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar had a terrifying dream, and he thought the dream was about him, and it was, and that God was going to judge him. And so Daniel, who I believe loved Nebuchadnezzar, said, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your wickedness by doing what is just and right, and renounce your your evil intent by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So this is the very thing that Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian system was doing. They were crushing the people of God, grinding them to a powder. In verses 7 through 11, we see Babylon's arrogant security coming to a shocking end. You said, I will continue forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now listen then, you wanton or pleasure-filled, pleasure-sodded creature, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment. 
on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You've trusted in your wickedness. You've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there's none beside me. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. So we see Babylon's arrogant arrogant security here. The image shifts from the pampered virgin daughter image to that of a spoiled, arrogant, complacent queen, queen of the Babylonians. She boasts that she's going to continue forever, the eternal queen. How easy it is for us, dear friends, to forget that we are dust. And to dust we will most certainly return. That someday we will die. It is appointed to each one of us to die once. And after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And so this statement, I will continue forever. It's always going to go on just like this. The prosperity and the ease and the luxury that we know will just keep going on and on and on forever. And we forget that someday we're going to die and it's all going back to dust. And she makes two particularly offensive boasts. First, no one sees me. You see that? Look at verse 10. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. She's doing dark Secret, wicked things, things at night, things in hidden, things in her cellar, things in her bedchamber. We'll talk more in a moment about her occultic practices. She does occultic things. And because it seems that no human eye can see her, she thinks she's totally secure and nobody knows what she's doing. But she forgets that there is a God who sees in darkness. Even the darkness is as light to him. And he said in Jeremiah 23, 24, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Secondly, she boasts in effect that she is a goddess. That she's God. Look at verse 8. I am and there is none beside me. This is God's special message to the human race. He said, when Moses said, what is your name? What shall we say is your name? He said, I am. I am that I am. That's my name. He is the eternally self-existent God. Everything else, including you, derives its existence from God. You exist because God made you. And so here's Babylon saying, I am and there is none beside me. If you look back one chapter, look at Isaiah 46, 9, there Almighty God says these words, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You see how similar those two are? So here Babylon is claiming to be God. Which is amazing. That, that fanatical commitment we all have to ourself can get to megalomaniac levels in some hearts weird levels where you actually think this could really be true i am and there's no other existence apart from me i remember when i was a a young kid i i had a morning paper route and it was very quiet and lonely it was a terrible job i hated that job especially when it got to be winter and snowed up in massachusetts and i was doing the boston sunday globe and i could carry like six of them at a time and i had 58 to deliver 
it was like working in the salt mines. I'll never, I'd never worked in the salt mines, but it's what I imagine working in the salt mines would be like. But it was early, early morning, and it was dark, and I started flirting with some weird philosophies. Like, um, no one else in the world had existence except that I thought about them. As a matter of fact, nothing behind me existed until I turned quickly to look, and then it would suddenly exist. I told these theories to my mother. She didn't think much of them. She wanted me to know that she had existence before I was born and wanted me to know about that. But this is the kind of weirdness that that commitment to self can have. Like you're a god or goddess and everything exists around you. Babylon had reached that level. And sudden devastation is going to come. Widowhood and loss of children. She thinks she'll never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. But both of these would overtake her in a single moment. She feels secure behind her lofty walls of Babylon. She feels secure behind the might and power of the Babylonian army. She's got a husband who's a warrior, metaphorically. And he wins every battle, so she's secure. But widowhood will suddenly come on her. That's Babylon's going to lose militarily. They're going to be defeated by the Medo-Persian army. And they're dead. Her young men will die. And then loss of children will never come on me. The children refer to the Babylonian population. And they're secure and safe behind the army and behind the walls. No, they're not. You're going to lose your children too. So Babylon will be slaughtered and whatever remnant is left will flee for their lives as refugees. And, verse 12 through 15, Babylon's occultic powers fail to save her. Babylon is dabbling in the occult as they always did. Verse 9, these terrors will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and potent spells. They're, these are the dark things she's doing when she thinks no one is watching. The Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, are well known for their incantations and black arts and divination and all that. Stargazing and prediction, predictions based on dreams. They studied omens. They uttered dark spells. And God mocks that false confidence. He says, disaster is going to come upon you and you won't be able to conjure it away. And things are going to come on you that you can't predict by your stargazing. And Babylon's occultic powers in the end have no weight, no mass to them. The Bible portrays the glory of God. The Hebrew word for glory, kavod, means massiveness. He's weighty. And what God does is massive. But their occultic powers are like stubble, like dry grass in a bonfire. They, they have no mass to them. They're, you can't warm yourself by the fire because there's nothing to them. And when God's wrath comes, when God's rage comes, all of their pathetic powers will be burned up in an instant. That's what he's saying. And so therefore Babylon cannot save herself. All right, so that's Isaiah 47. What does that have to do with us today? Well, I've already told you from the beginning. I basically front-loaded the sermon and put applications right at the start. Understand this world by faith. See it by faith. Don't see it as it merely appears. Look around you and see what's happening by faith, with eyes of faith. See it properly. Understand the infinite power of God both to destroy and to save. As with every text in the Bible, the primary issue always is individual salvation through faith in Christ. All roads lead to that. You folks live in a world dominated by the spirit of Babylon. Judgment day is coming. 
your idolatries and your sins and the things you do in secret and all of the ways you have capitulated to the world system, all of those things, if you're not a Christian, have been storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Flee to Christ. Christ, verse 4, is the Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel is his name. The God of the universe sent his son into the world who lived a sinless life, never yielded to Satan's temptations, did not bow down and worship him, had nothing to do with the spirit of Babylon. In fact, will it be its destroyer and has come to save you. So flee to him, trust in him, believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And don't be complacent. Don't be like the virgin daughter of Babylon or the queen of Babylon thinking the way things are for me is the way it's always going to be. I'm always going to be healthy. I'm always going to be successful. Uh, I'm always going to live in a, in a country. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> uh, a little bit more. Or calm down a little. Um, either way. Um, I'm always going to live in a country that is militarily powerful and economically prosperous. Do you live right now in a country that's militarily powerful and economically prosperous? Do you know that the United States spends, what is it, $16.8 billion a year on military? Which equals the next nine nations put together. I think it's easy to say the United States is the most powerful military force on earth. What about the economy? Do you know that the economy of the United States is something like $17 trillion? $17 trillion. By the way, I got the figure on military wrong. We spend three quarters of a trillion dollars on military every year. 17 trillion gross domestic product. A little more than double China's, which is number two. So that means you live in the nation that is the most powerful economic and military nation on earth. Any chance that Satan is interested in America and exerting an, a magnetic pull in the spirit of Babylon on this nation. Don't be complacent. Don't think things will always be the way they are now. Don't put your trust in military prowess. Don't be like the virgin daughter of Babylon or the queen thinking things like that will never come. Find your refuge in God and in God alone. In what Christ did on the cross. Don't be complacent. And don't think that just because things are good now or whatever, they'll always be that way for you personally or for us nationally. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Ask God daily to deliver you from the world's allures. It's enticing, it's pulling on you. Ask God to protect you and protect your heart. Very practically, give money away to the poor and needy and to the spread of the gospel. Give money away. Money is huge on the whole spirit of Babylon. Be generous with your money toward the poor and needy. Be generous with your money toward the spread of the gospel. Use your money wisely. Sever the tie the world Babylon has on you by doing that. I want to say a brief word about the magic and the occult of Babylon. Do you see an allure toward magic and occult in our culture? I, I, I'm amazed. There's a movie out about the Ouija board now. Who's paying to go see that? My goodness. The Ouija board. There's an interest in that kind of thing. Witchcraft and go gods, pagan gods and and um, demons and zombies and all that. 
And understand that these occultic things are evil and that God will judge all who practice them. And that when the gospel came to Ephesus, there were some people so convicted by their involvement in the occult that they brought these magic scrolls and burned them. And their value was 50,000 silver pieces. They were converted away from that. Beware of these occultic things. And understand God's zeal to take vengeance on behalf of his suffering people, the church around the world. The world is either going to show you luxury and enticement or the mailed fist of crushing persecution. Both are parts of Babylon. Military power, economic power. So right now, there are brothers and sisters who are incarcerated for their faith or being beheaded for their faith. Who are suffering. The persecuted church is suffering and the blood is being shed. God sees it. He will take vengeance. He will spare no one. So let us be aware of the persecuted church. Let's pray for them. Get ready for it perhaps to come in our lifetime. And plead with God. And finally, if I can just leave you with a word of encouragement. Someday this will all be done. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Someday we're going to come out forever from Babylon and it will have no magnetic pull on us at all. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Amen? And it's going to be done. So be warned, yes, but be greatly encouraged. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time in the word. We thank you for the things that we have learned. Father, I pray that you deliver us from the world's allures. Help us to be aware of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And, and to feel that magnetic pull, but to know that Christ has greater power. And Lord, I pray again for any that are here that are lost. They've come in here and they're just in the world. That they would turn to Christ and say, Jesus, rescue me from this. I don't want to go down to destruction. Save me. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.